Uh, we are back into our series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at the very famous golden rule this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7, uh, and we're going we're gonna to cover a lot this morning. We're going to cover verse 12. <laughs> so Matthew 7, verse 12, you can turn there if you'd like to. On, uh, on January 29th, way, way back in 1792, in the midst of the African slave trade, there was a, a Baptist preacher, and his name was Abraham Booth. And he preached a sermon on that Sunday in London, England. And the title of that sermon was, bear with me, Commerce in the Human Species and the Enslaving of Innocent Persons Inimical to the Laws of Moses and the Gospel of Christ. My sermon titled The Golden Rule. Aren't you glad I don't have a long-winded sermon title? But, but you have to forgive Mr. Booth because uh, aside from the long-winded sermon title, it was a really good sermon. And what, what Booth understood was that the gospel of Jesus Christ meant that there is absolutely no allowance for the African slave trade to exist. That it was utterly evil in light of the gospel of Jesus. And he knew as a minister of that gospel... That he had to make men and women see that based on Jesus' teachings, the slave trade had to be abolished. And so part of his sermon, what he did is Booth painted an imaginary picture for those listening of what it would be like for the men and women in Britain if the the, the horrors of the African slave trade uh, were reversed and the British people became the targets of the horrors that they were committing to others. In his sermon, Booth considered what if slave ships were landing on British shores, raiding British cities and towns, kidnapping and whipping and beating and dragging away your loved ones, shackling them in the hold of a crowded unsanitary ship for a very long journey, your sons and daughters being taken away from you, you never seeing your spouses again, destined to a life of mistreatment in a land that they don't know. This is what Booth was painting for the people in his congregation. You see, what what he was trying to do by painting this imaginary picture for the British people is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we have a duty to do when it comes to the regard that we are to have for our fellow men and women. Booth was holding before those listening to his sermon the, the spirit of the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. See, by re- reversing the reality of the slave trade in his sermon, Booth was trying to confront people with the golden rule. The fact that they could not possibly want such evil things to happen to them or their loved ones. So how could they dare do that to somebody else? Booth understood that if this commandment from Jesus was lived out, people could never commit evil toward another person. He understood that not just the African slave trade would have to end, but basically all evil in the world committed by a person or a group of people toward others would be abolished if we lived according to this rule. And he's right. But the reality is, though the vast majority of the world, I would say, knows of the golden rule, whether they consider themselves religious or not, very few people live according to the golden rule. 
Because there's a problem in the human heart that makes it impossible to do so. A problem that must first be rectified before one can follow the golden rule. For you history buffs in here, uh, Jesus is not the person, not the one who invented the golden rule. According to commentators, it's found in many different backgrounds and diverse historical settings that are separate from Christianity and Judaism. Though certainly I would say that the golden rule that we know today came from the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7.12. And it actually differs from previous known versions of this rule that existed, including what was taught by the rabbis. Jewish rabbis used to teach the golden rule in a negative form. And so they would teach, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Meanwhile, we can see in verse 12, Jesus teaches a positive iteration of the rule. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It reminds me when we looked at chapter 5, the six antitheses that Jesus teaches in chapter 5, where he gives uh, his disciples a higher standard to live by than what the Jewish teachers were teaching from the religious law. Right? He would say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say you shall not hate. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not even look at a woman with lustful intent. And so I can imagine Jesus saying here, you've heard that it was said, what's hateful for you, do not do to another person. But I say to you, whatever you wish someone would do to you, do also to them. See, Jesus' command here requires a much greater regard of our fellow man. The standard from the rabbis was, don't do something to another person that you would hate having done to you. And, and let's be honest, like, that's a very low standard. Is it not? Like, that's a low standard. Don't do something to someone else that you would hate having done to you. It's an incredibly low standard, but, or at least it should be, but our world often can't even reach that standard, which shows the corruption of the human heart, but, but it is a low standard. Right? Like, whatever I would hate, like, I, I hate being mistreated, so I shouldn't mistreat someone else. I would not want to be punched in the face. So I shouldn't punch somebody else in the face. Like these are basic things. I would hate to be insulted. And so I'm not going to insult somebody else. But then we know we have a problem with our tongues. That one's a bit harder, right? So we can see that even the negative version of this rule to just not do evil to another person is hard to follow. And Jesus said, my standard for you is much greater than that. You are not just to refrain from doing evil to others. I want you to do to others anything that you would want done for yourself. That's a whole different thing. So I want to consider just two things this morning in regards to Jesus' command here. I want to consider, first, why can't the world live this way? And then second, I want to consider, how can we live like And so first, why can't the world live this way? Well, as we've already concluded, the majority of the world knows the golden rule. Right? Parents have been teaching their kids this rule for generations. You hear it all the time. Treat others as you would like to be treated. 
And yet humanity can't even get that right. And so why are people so unable to live this command? And it's a result of the condition of the human heart that has existed since the Garden of Eden. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, if you have your Bibles. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam. And he ate. Now, Satan's tactic of how he influenced Adam and Eve towards sin is incredibly informative. And it could be an entire sermon in itself. But I want to just look at one aspect of it for the sake of this morning. And the aspect of of Satan's tactics that I want to look at is the fact that Satan appealed to Eve's desires. He was appealing to the desires that were within Eve's heart. He understood what the letter of James teaches explicitly, that sin comes from our own desires. It comes from within. James 1, 14 to 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so in the garden, Satan stoked the flames of the desire that was in Eve in order to get her to act against God. Just look at the text again. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good and it was a delight and desired to make one wise, she ate. Satan stoked a desire in Eve's heart that brought her to sin. And really at the root of that desire, what was it? It was a desire for self. Self-satisfaction. Self-concern. Self-realization. Eve's act of taking the fruit was entirely about self. Satan made her think God was holding back, so she was going to get whatever he was withholding for herself. She wanted to be like God. The fruit looked good to her. She wanted to be wise. She was thinking only about herself, and so she ate of the fruit. Adam and Eve's total regard for self and complete disregard for anything else has been the condition of the human heart ever since sin entered into the world through their decision to put self above God. And is the reason why, though humanity thinks the golden rule sounds really nice, and we teach it to our children, we are largely unable to live by it. 
And this inability to live it out is not just on a large scale. It's not just between nations or between classes of people or races of people. It's within families. It's between spouses. I mean, the inability to break off selfishness is one of the main reasons why so many marriages crumble. Because you just can't serve the other person because you're too selfish. The underlying theological reason for why humanity can't live according to the golden rule is actually explained by what Jesus says at the end of verse 12. When he says, for this is the law and the prophets. To do for another what you want done for you, Jesus says, is the law and the prophets. Well, what does he mean by that? Jesus is saying something very significant here. He's saying that all of God's law and prophets point in this direction, point to living this kind of a lifestyle. When an individual lives in this way with such regard for others, they're living according to and embracing the spirit of the entirety of God's law. And we know that scripture teaches the natural man can't do it because the natural man has no ability to live according to God's law. The golden rule, in essence, is just a different wording for the second greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's just a a different way of stating that commandment. But the natural man can't do that because prior to being able to do that, you must first live by the first commandment to love God. And you can't properly love people until you love God. Love God and then you will love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God must be existent first. In Romans 8, 7, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And this is the condition of all of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. The law of God is an expression of God's will. And before the law was even given through Moses, man was at odds with God and his will. Adam and Eve threw over God's will for their own. And humanity has been following in their footsteps ever since. I'll leave you with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones just to sum up this section on why the world can't live like this. He writes, The whole thing can be brought down to one word. Self. Our Lord says that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But that is the one thing we do not do and do not want to do. Because we love self so much in a wrong way. We do not do do unto others as we wish them to do unto us. Because the whole time we are thinking only about ourselves. And we never transfer our thought to the other person. The condition of man in sin as a result of the fall is he is entirely self-centered. Well, that's depressing. (laughs) All right, let's pray. No. Uh, And so then the question becomes, if this is the condition of man, well, then how can we live like this? And you know what I'm going to say. It must begin with the gospel. 
It must begin with Jesus Christ. Like everything else in the Sermon on the Mount, I've, I've repeated over and over again, the Sermon on the Mount is for followers of Jesus. We cannot read the Sermon on the Mount and think we can follow it or we misunderstand what Jesus is teaching, right? It requires a supernatural starting place. And so we must start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hearts must be cleansed of our self-centeredness through the work of the cross. We have to be cleansed of our enmity toward God and, and his law. And this happens only through the power of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our old self must die with Christ so that we may rise again as a new creation with Christ in faith. Only then. Only then can we live by any of Jesus' commands, let alone to do unto others as we would have them do. Now, having said that, we know followers of Jesus aren't suddenly made perfect in coming to faith in him. Right? Sin remains. That was like a really quiet hallelujah from a bunch of people. Like, mm-hmm, I know that. Right? Sin remains. And influence in this life, yet through Christ, not one that we are enslaved to any longer. It is, it's not as though like the Holy Spirit comes and to, to borrow from Carrie Underwood, takes the wheel, right? And just completely controls everything. We're all good from the moment we come to Christ. Like if we're all honest, we still live way more selfishly than we should, right? I think we can all admit to that. And so we must by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us, make conscious decisions every day to crucify our flesh, to resolve to live in the way that Jesus commands us to. The Spirit enables us to do so, but we have an active part in it. And when it comes to living out the golden rule, there is a key understanding or mindset or truth, however you want to say that, that the follower of Christ must hold on to, must grasp to, in order to be able to live this out, in order to crucify our flesh the way we should, to lay down our selfishness and our selfish desires, to look to the good of others, to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think Jesus graciously gives us the answer in the text. See, when you look back at verse 12, it begins, at least in the ESV version, with a connecting word. It begins with the word so. In some other versions, it begins with a stronger connecting word. It begins with the word for. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples that our ability to live this way is connected to something that he taught leading up to verse 12. He's saying, therefore, in light of this, whatever this is pointing to, whatever you wish others do to you, do to them. And you can do it in light of this truth. And so what is this truth that he is pointing us back to so that we may live according to the command of verse 12? And I think it's what Jesus says right before it in verse 7 to 11. We looked at this two weeks ago. Ask, maybe three weeks ago, I have no idea. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
I think this is what Jesus is pointing us back to. This is what the so points back to or the four points back to depending on the version that you read. Here's the, the understanding that we must have. The thing that must captivate our hearts to do unto others as we would have them do. The disciple of Jesus who will be able to live out this command must first be convinced in their heart, in your mind, that your heavenly father has your best interests in mind. And he gives only good gifts to you always. You must be convinced of the goodness of God and the immense regard that he has for you as, your, as his child. You have to be convinced of that. You see, this is what was lost in the garden. Adam and Eve doubted that God had their best interests in mind. They began to believe that he was withholding good things rather than understanding he was only withholding what was not good for them. And this lack of trust caused them to turn to self and try to obtain. But when you are convinced that God will give you all good things, you can then be free to stop worrying about yourself because the God of the universe is for you. And you are then free to focus on others and do for them what you would have them do for you. Because you know without a shadow of a doubt that the God of the universe, your heavenly father, is doing everything for you that you need. That you are getting all good things. That you are not missing out on anything. You see, one of the biggest slip-ups that followers of Christ have that leads to sin almost every time is thinking that we are missing out on something good. If I just had that, if, if, I, if God would just let me accomplish this, if God just gave me that, these are lies. We have to recognize them as lies and trust that the word of God says that he gives us all good things. Why doubt that? means you have everything that you need. You have everything that's good for you. Whatever you don't have is not good for you, whether in this moment or in all of life. If we could jump forward into eternity when we are in the kingdom of God and be able to look back on our life, we will see that we lacked nothing. That we had everything that we need. We just can't grasp that now. And so we wonder, but we need to stop wondering and trust God's word, trust his character. We talked a couple weeks ago, but all of us can look back and we can see at one or other time in our lives, we're like, I want this, I want this. And we get a few years down the road, we go, thank God you didn't give that to me. If we could just look through the entirety of our lives, we would understand that is always the case. And when this kind of, of mindset undergirds the follower of Jesus, I'm telling you, you become a powerhouse for the kingdom of God. Like you, you can love your neighbor as yourself. Your good deeds shine so bright. And people see your father in heaven through your deeds. People will start to stand up and notice like this person is so different. They have no regard for themselves. How is that possible? Because you have such a trust in your heavenly father. I believe that we can live this way because Jesus word says that we can. We just have to trust. This command is not a command to follow the letter of the law of the law. 
It's not a sort of resigned, well, I, I, I guess I have to do for others what I want them to be done for me. That's not what the command is. Right? The spirit of the law gets captured in a person that understands that God is holy for them and overflowing and, and trusting in God because it's not about, well, I'm doing blank because Jesus says I have to. But rather, your heart is full. And in that trust, you're like, I'm taken care of. God's got me. I don't even need to look to myself. And that frees you up to then just be looking to others. Like suddenly you're able to take a step out of your own shoes and step into someone else's shoes and go, wow. Look at the situation that they're in. If I was in that situation, what would I want done? Like if I was in the midst of that difficulty, oh, how would I want other people to serve me? If I was going through that in my life, what would I need? We've got to get the blinders off so we can see these things. And the blinders are removed when we trust what God says. And what happens is this grows compassion in our hearts. And compassion reflects our Savior. You know, the most common thing the gospel says about Jesus' attitude towards others is he had compassion on them. Why? Because he wasn't concerned with self. It freed him up to look at others and have compassion for what they were going through. So, followers of Jesus, just imagine if you trusted so deeply that God gave you all good things, that he wasn't holding back anything from you, how much that would free you up to do the same thing for others. Every day, in every situation, you'd be able to look at another person. You'd be able to step into their shoes and say, if I was in that situation, what would I want done? Imagine what our world would look like. You imagine what our community would look like if even just the people in this room did that? That's powerful. The Spirit of God can do this in you. He can do it in all of us if we want Him to. And it's a process. I'm not saying we're going to walk out of here today and be like, all right, not thinking about self anymore, we're good. No, sin clings closely. That's why every single day we go to the cross and we have to lay down self. We have to crucify flesh. It's a process, but He's able to do it. Start every single day waking up and praying to that end. Imagine if we did that. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the power that is within us. Father, we know that as, as I speak about these things from your word, it, it's not about us having any ability to do it in our, on our own strength. No, no. No, let us not make that mistake that we could do it on our own. Father, but we, we have the Spirit of God in us. We, we have the Spirit of God that literally brings people from death to life. Like the, the Spirit of God that like caused, caused the disciples to walk past people and just their shadow laying, landing on people, they were healed. This is the power that's within us. 
We, we have immense power to be changed because of your spirit. God, if we just bring ourselves under your authority, come to you and earnestly ask. Just even what it says in verse 7 to 11. Ask and you will receive. God, I, I guarantee if we ask you to make us less selfish, you're going to answer that one. So Father, imagine if every day we came before you and said, Lord, just make me a little less selfish today. Open my eyes to other people. There's so many opportunities out there to bless others for Christ. May we not be blind to them. Lord, help us to seek them. I think we, we get so caught up sometimes, but Lord, help us to slow down and in every situation just think, okay, if, if that was me, what would I want? I think hearts would be changed even just through that kind of simple act. And so, Father, work in your people. Father, work in me. Break off my selfishness, the high regard that I have for the things that I want. And Lord, maybe for a lot of us, it just starts in our homes, maybe towards our children or towards our spouse. It doesn't need to be some big grand gesture. Maybe the, the space that it's needed most is right in our own homes. To just say, I'm gonna stop living for me so much and I'm gonna ask, what, what do my kids need in this situation? What does my wife need in this situation? What does my husband need in this situation? Our homes would be transformed when we live that way. And so, Lord, I ask that you would work in your people, that you would graciously convict in the areas that we need conviction, and you would graciously exhort us, and you would encourage us to live this way. Thank you, Lord, for your patience, and thank you for the power that's alive within us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.